Good Wednesday morning, everyone. We are doing something a little bit different today. John was asked to speak at Mobile, Alabama at a CMBA conference, a winter conference for students. And so you are gonna be listening to that talk. This is gonna be talk one, and there are a total of three talks. Fundamentally paved by the Wellcome Trust, the world's greatest employers, uh, to do research. But they needed consultants in medicine, so uh, I did one session a week, and it was wonderful uh, from a medical point of view. I saw more LE kidney disease in one month than I'd seen in four years in London. There's an incredible amount of lupus in Jamaica, probably due to her. We're not certain of that yet. Um, but there was, there was nobody coming in who or really to be talking to somebody who'd got nothing better to do than to listen to their narcissistic troubles. Uh, like happens nowadays. So, real medicine, really uh, interesting stuff. But a common phenomenon, uh, because of the large amounts of rum that were drunk and also uh, uh, peanuts, uh, peanuts that are not processed properly contain is one source of one of the most effective carcinogens of the liver, aflatoxin. Uh, that's why you should never buy your peanuts from a health food store because they can't afford to do the expensive tests to know whether there's any aflatoxin there. But the, the big companies do do that because they've got a product to protect. So there's one situation in which the, uh, the technically produced peanuts are lighter better than the raw ones. So of course, you're not going to get aflatoxin here very much, but that was common. So you could diagnose cancer of the kidney, of the liver, very easily at that level, um, clinically. First of all, the story made it right, and they said how tired they were, and there might be a bit of jaundice, but you could feel it, because it's quite a tough cancer, and you could listen to it. You put your stethoscope on the skin over a, a cancer that's coming through uh, the liver into the peritoneum, and this, you can hear a rub. There wasn't going to be any question about the outcome. They were going to be dead in less than a year. But at least I could save them wasting their money come to the university. So I would say, there's good news and there's bad news. Which do you want first? And of course, they want the good news first. I said, well, I, you're right, you're sick, and I know what's wrong with you. The bad news is that I can't do anything about it. And then I would explain and tell them what I thought was the likely time that they had left. And almost invariably, they would say thank you. Isn't that amazing? Why didn't they say thank you? Because now they knew what they ought to do. And human beings come into the world oughted, as Peter Christ puts it. We know what our duties are. When we come to the end of life, which you guys are not thinking about, you need to sort out the bad relationships that you've let go on for a long while. You need to set a lot of things straight if you're going to die well. We don't, you won't even hear about dying well. Uh, as the bureaucrats take over, these things die. And they will have to be rebuilt in the church where they started. I suspect that within your lifetime, we will see the rebirth of real human medicine within the context of the church. And in Africa, people walk past modern hospitals to get to the mission hospital. Why? Because in the mission hospital, they're treated as 
people made in the image of God. You won't hear that in medical school. There's a failure to understand the history. And that's terrifying. Now, uh, I grew up in a... Those of you who've heard me before, this is just a little introduction, so that you realize that I'm talking from the perspective of having made almost all the mistakes it's possible to make. Uh, uh, not from a point of view of holier than thou, far from it. I wish that were the position I was talking from, but it isn't, so you do what you do. And Jesus only asks you to do one thing. Go and tell what the Lord has done for you. And if you don't have anything to say, don't say anything. And talk to him about it. So I, I grew up in a blue-collar family in Birmingham, England, where the Industrial Revolution began. My grandfather on my mother's side was a Marxist trade union leader, and on the other side, a, a drunken coppersmith. So it wasn't a good start, so to speak. Uh, my mother, uh, who grew up with eight siblings in the, uh, the Marxist family, uh, my grandfather had no education at all, but he was a Rolls-Royce toolmaker, uh, could walk to, work to a ten-thousandth of an inch, uh, lost his job many times for starting a trade union, but when they were needed. But uh, he read, he, he knew Shakespeare better than many of my colleagues in the English department of the university. He could quote reams of it, and he could quote Shaw and Shakespeare and, and Marx and Engels. And I thought Churchill's Christian name was Brimstone because he always called Churchill Brimstone Churchill. And the first thing I knew about him was that he had quite unjustly and maliciously stopped a strike, a legitimate strike in Abu Vail in his younger years in the 1930s, uh, when people were being paid a wage which wasn't a living wage, and he sent the troops in. Abu Vail never forgave him. When he died, they danced in the street. So I had a, a very uh, strange understanding of the world in political terms. My mother had become a Christian and my father was a Christian. Uh, and my mother's conversion was amazing. Uh, she was actually a very bright woman and she got a scholarship, but her, her father wouldn't let her take it. He said, I will have no favorites in this family. You're not going to be different from your siblings. So age 13, she was working as a seamstress in Birmingham. But by the grace of God, she was working next to a Christian woman who was wise. Don't evangelize the people you work with. They're watching you. That's your evangelism. Uh, and don't expect it to work if the two don't fit together. They're watching you all the while. Uh, this woman realized that this was a very angry teenager, and she loved her. Just was nice to her, cared about her. And when she'd earned her brownie points, so to speak, she said to my mother one day, we've got some interesting missionaries at our church this week. Would you like to come? And my mother said, I've got nothing better to do. I'll come. Now, these are missionaries who'd gone to the Belgian Congo with C.T. Studd, who was the founder of a mission called WEC. The only thing you need to know about WEC is they didn't pay a salary. They were truly faith missionaries, and they had gone to the Congo in the early part of the 
20th century, early 1900s. Um, they came home every five to ten years on furlough, not like we do nowadays. And of course, they had these amazing stories. They spend three hours a day in prayer. You do when you have no income. And God had never let them down. This is as far from Marxism as you can get. And my mother jaw dropped, basically, and went, and on the third night she got saved. Now she had someone to write to, because in those days the mail got to the middle of the Achuri forest. It doesn't anymore, but it did then. So they knew when she got engaged, when she got married, and when I was conceived. What I didn't learn until some 45 or so years later was that from the day they heard that I was conceived, they put me on their daily prayer list. They prayed that I would become a Christian, that I would become a doctor, that I would go to the Belgian Congo. Nobody told me. Now, if you are a Christian at your age, the most likely reason is that you've been loved into that by your family. You may not have adopted it in any deep sense. You may not have any conversion story as such. A lot of people don't. I don't. Uh, that isn't the way it works for everyone. I was smart enough as a little boy. I, only in retrospect, I understand that was it because I was reading books that you're not supposed to read at that age. And I understood very early that this story's got to be true that I heard every week in church because... People went willingly with their children into the Colosseum and were murdered. And they took their children with them because they didn't want them brought up as pagans. Uh, and they died courageously. And some of the stories were actually the most powerful stories in the early pr Christian world. There's a famous one of uh, a noble Roman lady and a slave girl who died together, both Christian. And uh, the slave girl was pregnant when she was taken in. And they said, well, you can have your baby first. You'll turn another slave. Uh, and she had a difficult delivery and she was screaming. And the guards were taunting her. You're screaming now. What about next week with the lions? And she said to them, next week, he will be with me. And they knelt and prayed and died without a sound. Uh, that story went round the Roman world, and many others like it. The best account in many ways uh, that I know of was in First Things some years ago by a very unusual man, but he could write, uh, David Bensley Hart. His uh, atheist delusions is much better than, uh, than Dawkins' God delusion, uh, and it'll expand your vocabulary as well. But he pointed out that the, the people who went willingly to be martyrs in the early church were numbered in their thousands when the population of the world was a fraction of where it is now. And as he puts it beautifully, he says, by any reckoning, it was a victory because the pagan temples were empty, the idols were silenced, and the whole of the Western world knelt at the feet of Jesus in cultural terms. And that is what happened. And we don't read history anymore. You are not taught any history. Let me rub it in, a little salt in the wound. And I'd be delighted if one of you 
proves me wrong at this point. Do any of you know the date and where slavery was first abolished in the Western world? Guess, if you want to, just for fun. Getting it wrong is a 100% learning experience. Should always be taken with both hands when the opportunity occurs. Hmm? Sorry? Ah, no, not Alfred Overdorf. I couldn't even believe that you were saying that. You were just teasing, but that's all right. <laughs> it was England. And the date? 1203. You put it into Wikipedia, it won't come up. Put it into Google, it won't come up. They don't want you to know. You have to put in Sedan Salm, London Conference 1203. And it'll come up. Shortly before he died, he assembled the church in England and said slavery is not acceptable to Christians. And they agreed. And the church in those days could make those laws. And they said that holding of slaves in England is not acceptable. And they could still do it in Ireland, but uh, the start was in England in the 13th century. They don't tell you that story because it doesn't fit with the narrative that you're being sold in university today. So you've got to become a lot better at fact-checking them. They're not very good at it themselves. Uh, I have a good friend who has, uh, who I've known for 25, it took 25 years for him to become a Christian. Um, we met over 25 years ago uh, because he came to hear a lecture I gave in Ottawa. He was a journalist, a PhD in history, uh, speaks three or four languages, very smart guy. And after the lecture, he was walking out and uh, he said to another journalist, the only Christian journalist I knew in Ottawa, I enjoyed that lecture. I didn't expect to. And she said, oh, would you like to meet him? And he said, yes, as long as he doesn't know that I would like to meet him. She said, I can arrange that. And she did. She set up a lunch group for some journalists at the National Press Club in Ottawa. And I was the only non-journalist invited. I mean, these things only last for a few weeks, but uh, John and I got on well. We both liked to argue, and we could do it without, uh, with enjoyment, lots of irony and no venom. And uh, so when it stopped, we went on having lunch together every few months. Uh, he was an atheist, I was a Christian, uh, and we enjoyed the involvement and we were very good for one another in getting to read the texts that mattered. It's important to read the opposition as well as your own side of the argument. So because of me, he ended up reading the whole of Lewis and I read a lot of other people that I'm glad to have read uh, because I know what their arguments are better and it's been very useful. Uh, but it, it didn't make any progress. Uh, we both stood our ground. And then one Saturday, I bought the Saturday paper. I very rarely bought it. It was just, the paper shop was just around the, the corner from our house. But for some reason, I, well, I know what the reason was, but shortly, I bought it. And he had written an op-ed piece on the, in that paper, which was absolutely brilliant. And it went roughly like this. I'm paraphrasing, but you can uh, get the tone of it. He said, the ancient world at the time of Christ was not an ignorant backwater, but where 
Greek learning, Roman pragmatism, and Jewish theology met. Some fishermen, a tax collector, and a man who had a seizure on the road to Damascus persuaded their neighbours and then the whole Roman Empire that a dead Jewish carpenter was God. How weird is that? And this God didn't prance around wielding his power but allowed his creatures to nail him to a stick on the dunghill and that changed the history of the world. How weird is that? And I, as an atheist, have to acknowledge that people like Augustine, Aquinas, Calvin, all the way down to C.S. Lewis, by which, by this stage, he'd read the whole of Lewis and actually uh, can talk about, say, the, 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 trilogy, the Perilandra and Hideous Strength trilogy without any notes at all, much better than I can do. He said, I must acknowledge that they were not ignorant. They were clever. They were wise. And I have to acknowledge that when the Irish... Not the Irish, the, sorry, I got that one wrong. When the Norsemen came and ran into the Irish monks, the Irish monks won the argument. And they started laying off the slave girls and being nice. So if I'm going to be an honest atheist, I have to read the scriptures. But if I do, I'm mortally afraid that the monk may win the argument. I immediately sent him an email saying, John, I wish I'd written that in one and a half paragraphs, a better apology for the Christian faith than I've heard from a pulpit in many years. And he said, you wrote one, para you wrote one sentence, but you promised me when I needed to talk to you, you'd be available. I need to talk to you. Email back, you do. But you've chosen a bad day, the cook's away, we'll have to go to the pub. Uh, and he said, fine. And he turned up on his bike from his karate class. He's a black belt as well. Uh... And uh, I said, so what's happened? And he said, uh, well, I'm not an atheist anymore. I'm a theist now. I believe there's a God. But what do I do with Jesus? And I'm not being you. I didn't give the answer you would give. I said, well, you don't expect me to answer that question, do you? This is far too much fun to watch. <laughs> You've told me what you need to do. Do it. Read the scriptures. And nothing happened for about six or seven years. Uh, uh, but he made a bad marriage to a, a narcissistic Marxist. Uh, but they both came to believe there was a God, and so they thought they ought to get married. And this, he said, we both believe there is a God, but we don't yet believe in Jesus. Can you find a priest or marry us? And I said, yeah, I can do that for you. So I did, and there were... They dragged one witness off the street and it was done in 10 minutes, you know. But, but it was a move in the right direction. Uh, and then I run every summer uh, a program with my, my wife does all the organizing. I simply am the sort of figurehead uh, for physicians uh, in which over a period of eight years, we will teach you the history of the West, the intellectual history of the Western world so that you know who did what when and what mattered most. And uh, John had a great interest in uh, Magna Carta and the development of human rights from that point of view. And we got to that stage in the history. And I said, would you come and talk to my docs? And he said, sure, I will. And I asked him, where have you got to? He said, no change. Uh, 
And he gave a, a superb talk. They all loved him. So I asked him again the next year. And then to my great delight, I said, where have you got to? And he said, times are getting hard. It's time for me to come out, I believe. That's a real conversion, 25 years. I could see it happening in the pieces he wrote in the newspaper. He, wrote, he writes a regular column in, in the National Post, the best newspaper in North America, by the way, if you want some serious uh, op-ed articles and leaders and you get both sides of the argument so they're a real communist and they're real Christians uh, and there's no woke nonsense in that paper Peterson writes for them about every few months uh, there isn't a paper in North America that's, the Wall Street Journal comes close but not as good so if you need it if you want a newspaper that will make you think about what it means to be a Christian without intending to that's the one I would suggest and along with that uh, if you're serious as a Christian, uh, start reading. You can read it online, firstthings.com. Uh, you won't be able to read the whole magazine. You don't have enough background. You can read the last section, which is bulleted. You'll see why. And just keeps you up to date with the silly nonsenses going on in our world. Uh, choose a couple of titles and try making your way through it. But if you make that discipline work for a while, in a year or two, people who previously would argue with you because they thought they had a chance of winning will decline the opportunity. Um, unfortunately, in the evangelical church, we have neglected the mind. Evangelical Anglicans are probably the worst. I can actually say this from the pulpit. Why did Paul write the epistles? Now, none of you can give me an easy answer, can you? but they were all written for practical reasons. Paul was watching the church and it didn't look good to him. I don't think he was, he knew Christ was real and something would happen, but he, it didn't seem to be happening to him. Only Demas has left me, only Luke is with me or only Mark was with me. I've forgotten now who it was, but that was the end of his life. It looked bad, uh, but he carried on to the end. We're not like that, we're not as tough. Uh, so we've got a lot to learn at that level. So when you start engaging seriously, things begin to happen. That's an important point. Uh, and you start to learn things that you didn't otherwise know. So have some serious reading in your life. I got a bit off track there. We'll come back in a minute. It happens to me at my age. Uh, names disappear. It's very funny, actually, because I need a name and I can't remember it. But I know the food. I don't have Alzheimer's. Um, I just have this strange memory loss of names. So they haven't gone permanently. It's just the recall mechanism that's not working properly. And it comes back at random after that. But I can tell you the story of the person I'm about. And it's great fun in any decent audience. I only get about 90 seconds in. And somebody says, oh, yeah, that's Michael Faraday. Thank you. I said, that's the correct answer. And off we go. And of course, you smile. Everybody does. And now the clock is reset. And go on talking for longer and i have no idea how long i've been talking to for already and neither do you really unless you've looked at your watch uh, it was an american who taught me quite how bad this could be uh, uh, this is a digression there's lots of rabbit rabbit trails in my talks and most people enjoy them my wife hates them uh she wants it all neat and tidy and i say the life is not neat and tight and she does acknowledge that very often after a lecture somebody will come up and say I'm 
when you were saying, and it was one of the rabbit trials, I thought you were talking to me and Sally says, you know, grimacing, you know, because that's the way God works. Just to remind us, nothing to do with us, really. We're just doing what he tells us to do. Tell what the Lord has done in your life. And it works for other people, too. Uh, so that happens all the while. Get used to it. You, you have to be willing to go down that road. Uh, and I assure you, it's well worth going down because uh, he's, he's better at this than you are. Remember that he said, have no fear what you will say. And you live fearfully now, don't you? Especially men in medical school. Uh, medical schools and the university has been ruined. There's no humor there anymore because humor is almost always politically incorrect. So people walk on eggshells. It's terrible. Uh, but that's where we've got to. But have no fear. That's, that's what, as Christians, you ought to do. And I've had it happen to me big time. The most amazing one probably was some years ago, uh, about 20 years ago, there was an attempt made in Ottawa to legalize uh, euthanasia. And it was buried under a bill to prevent doctors being sued for increasing opiates at the end of life. Uh, and there should be no danger in doing There is no danger in doing that, and there was no need for the bill. It was really a means to open up killing patients. Fortunately, one Catholic senator's assistant realized this had got to the sort of committee stage and it was sliding in under the, uh, the radar. And there were only a few days left when he realized. And so he had to find at least three people, he thought, who represented serious numbers of doctors uh, to get to present to that committee. And there was only about 12 hours left to write what you were going to say. And I was one of the people he found. And there was a, a Catholic palliative care physician, another colleague of mine who knew all the data on this stuff. And we got our things in and they had to accept it because of the numbers we represented. So we got to talk to the committee. Now, when it came to be my turn, I was the third one to go. Uh, the first two went the day before. And there was one guy in between who sent, fortunately, as it turned out, he sent the committee to sleep. Some of them actually nodded off, you know. And... I get to the microphone and the chairman of the committee says, Dr. Patrick, don't read your paper to us. We will read it into the record. Talk to us. And so I had to put down what I'd prepared and I started to talk. I wish I'd written it. I was listening to myself and stuff that I hadn't used for years came up at exactly the right moment, quotations. It was absolutely brilliant, but it wasn't me. Uh, at least I couldn't imagine doing it, but there it is in Hansard. I can still go and find it. I must do so at some point because it's about a 20-year anniversary. I was on such a high at the end that I don't remember how it ended, but somebody sent me the copy of Hansard and it's lying around my library somewhere. And the chairman said, Dr. Patrick, if you use a scalpel like you use words, I would like to come and watch. And we stopped the bill. That gave us another 20 years, but now we failed. The culture is decaying. You're living in a decaying culture. Uh, I've just read this last week Dorothy Sayers' book, Letters to a Diminishing Church. 
well worth reading, written in the 1950s, but it is so apposite today. Uh, we have lost our imagination. Uh, and she was talking to a, a group about your age when, in the first talk she gives there, about how we have lost our sense of drama. The dogma is the drama, she says. Just think of the creeds, but you probably don't go to churches where creeds are actually said anymore. But as she says, the creed says that Christ, a man, is God, the God who made everything around you. Doesn't that blow your mind? And I bet none of you have ever had your mind blown by reciting a creed, have you? Because you, you, you've got to the point where you can read it without actually reading it. I mean, that is an absolutely incredible statement. But it's what you say you believe, but you don't live so you believe it. We, we don't. We like to dumb it down and make it domesticated. And God doesn't like that. In our family, one of our favorite lines in difficult situations is, but he is good. Can you know what comes before that? It's C.S. Lewis, The Lion and Wardrobe. When they first hear of Aslan, Lucy says to Mrs. Beaver, is he a tame lion? And Mrs. Beaver says, oh no, he's not tame, but he is good. He's not a tame lion. But you won't find out anything about that until you go beyond your own comfort zone. You don't learn. If you, if, you, if you choose to stay in a comfortable place, you'll say, fine. That's your choice. But if you go where you didn't want to go because you know he's in it, you're in for a wild ride, but you wouldn't miss it in retrospect. So those prayers for me, I got a, an amazing scholarship, there isn't time to tell the story, and I ended up going to one of the six best schools, high schools in England, the same school that Tolkien had been to a generation before me. And it, was, it took 100 boys a year from a population base of 6 million by competition with two affirmative action places, and I was one of them, because the local socialist council gave some money to the school every year because they knew what it did. This was a time when 3 or 4% of Brits went to university. 95% of King Edward's school went to university, and the ones that didn't were making too much money doing something else. Uh, and they said, take a couple of boys from the top 10. And they said, well, okay, we'll take the ones with the highest IQs. I didn't know that till years later, uh, because I wasn't educated like the boys who were there. They came from, you know, professorial families and the like. I used to say, there was one other boy like me in the class who committed suicide some years later. Uh, I, but I used to say, most of the class come to speech day uh, in Rolls Royces and my dad's got a bicycle. But it didn't matter because I loved it in a strange way. I, I, I wasn't intimidated, I was just overwhelmed. Is this really true? Can this really happen? To arrive at a high school, nobody in my family had ever gone to university and certainly nobody had gone to Kievitz. And I got to my first homeroom uh, and my homeroom, we call them forms, class you'd say here, uh, the teacher spoke five languages. Uh, oh, so this is high school. 
And when he, he proceeded to say, uh, you will be doing three languages this year, as well as English, uh, Latin, German, and French. Um, and I did. <laughs> uh, I, can't, I can't do many of them. I can only do English now, but I suppose the others would come back if I needed them. But it was an incredible education. Uh, quite stunning. And nothing like it, it still exists. But in, on this continent, in the 1960s, the Bible was removed from school. It should not have been removed. It was not removed in Britain because they at least asked the right question. You tried to fight it on religious grounds. That was silly. You should have fought it on cultural grounds. And that is an argument you can't lose. Because all cultures inhabit stories that give meaning to the culture. There is no such thing as a multicultural society. There can only be a multicultural collection of people. A culture is made out of what you hold in common. You cannot build it out of difference. It's impossible. And you will never ever see a multicultural patient. See why? Everybody you meet inhabits a story of meaning because that's a human condition. We have to do that. We can't avoid it. Uh, we all have to say ought and should and must on occasions. And all you have to do as a Christian is say, where do you get that idea of ought and must from? And they can't answer the question. The Christians can. They say it's hardwired because we're made in the image of God. And as a pediatrician, I mean, it's a no-brainer. When you have children, write down the first statement your children make that is quasi-philosophical. My favorite one is not fair. I mean, every child says it before they can speak complete sentences. Now, you could give the title not fair to any decent professor of philosophy and he could write a book. It wasn't acquired, it wasn't written by society, it was not imposed, it's not patriarchy, it's God. And he wrote it on the hearts of children. And we look at it and miss it. Have any of you ever noticed how C.S. Lewis opens Mere Christianity? I hope you've read it, but I suspect you haven't. But he opens with that thought. He, doesn't re he has children slightly older because they're speaking sentences. As a pediatrician, you know it's... It's much sooner than that. It's before they speak sentences. The smarter they are, the more highly articulate they become. But we are not like any other animal. Um, the best poets recognize it. I had a wonderful moment. I want to encourage you that you can go into any environment. And if, if the Lord is with you, you don't have to have any fear at all. And I don't. Uh, I don't remember when I was last fearful. Uh, even with a gun pointing at me in Zaire, both of us, my wife and I, and, and my son was with me, and he, he, we were on. A, we'd had a breakdown, and there's no law in Zaire at that time. Now the DRC, and on that road, people had been murdered the week before by soldiers. Nothing happened, uh, but this guy was drunk, and he got us out, and he didn't shoot us immediately. And after a minute or two, I said to my son, are you frightened? He said, no, I'm not. Isn't that strange? I said, neither am I, and neither is your mother. And he knows it, and it's terrifying him. Because they have a concept of strength of spirit. And they tell me I have a strong one.
the, the witch doctors say, I can't touch you. Your spirit's too strong. That's a category I don't understand. But that night I understood it. He was terrified. And then out of nowhere, a, a soldier of higher rank who was sober arrived and we were free. He said, what on earth is that about? We didn't know that the Rwanda war was just blowing up. Uh, Sally was on the bridge in Goma. She was on the board of World Relief Canada. And she stayed in Africa for two years because that was the year my youngest went to university. I could look after myself. And there were six and seven-year-olds trying to care for four-year-olds. Sally loves kids. She was not going to walk away. And there was no email, no contact. And so we had to trust. Neither of us was at any point afraid to the other. We had no anxiety. None. That is amazing, isn't it? But that's what happens. Uh, but that happens when you go beyond your comfort zone. I had the best summer of my life in 1995 in the refugee camps. I went out to see my wife. She came home for about a week at Christmas uh, just to raise money. And frankly, the whole family said, thank God she's gone back when it was over because she just co-opted everybody's time for her project and there was no argument. You just had to do exactly what she wanted. And then she disappeared back to Africa. Uh, so I went out to see her. I knew she'd have a, a decent place to stay. And Bukavu is, if it was peaceful, it would be a tourist mecca. The, uh, you're going on Lake Kivu, Kivu quite soon. Uh, the, the temperature's perfect. Uh, the scenery is incredible. The Itumbi Mountains, absolutely gorgeous place to walk. And you can see the gorillas as well, you know, it's just, but you're also highly likely to get raped or murdered, you know, so that's the, that's the downside. But anyway, I, uh, I, I went to see her. I wasn't intending to say this tonight, but there you go. Um, and she said, you're talking to the leaders of my camps tomorrow morning. I said, what? She said, you've heard. I said, I've just flown halfway around the world to get here. She says, you never suffer from jet lag. You don't have a problem. Uh, and she's quite right. Um, and I said, what am I going to say to them? I'm a professor. I live up in an ivory tower. They've lost everything. She said, you're exactly what they need. Uh, you can't argue. I went. And the first thing you have to know about Rwanda and is that it's a very church-going country. Before the war, 80 or 90% of people went to church, roughly half Catholic, half Protestant. So we talked for about three hours, and then we got to the question, how can we, who call ourselves Christian, end up killing one another? Women had slaughtered children whose names they knew by locking them in a hut and setting them on fire. People had killed people they'd sat next to in church because they belonged to the other tribe. And when it, it wasn't a genocide, it was an outpouring of evil. Previously, Hutu and Tutsi, whenever they met, the Tutsi won. This time, the Hutu went mad as they had never done before, and the Tutsi were totally unprepared, and they got slaughtered. But they won in the end, and they rule now, so 20% are ruling 80%. That, that's not a long-term solution. But these were Christian, and they said, can you help us? And I, I said, well, 
there are four talks that I could give, I think, that might help you. One would be to teach you the history of other countries, like my own, England, which were as brutal as you are, or worse, and Christianity didn't stop it immediately. Conversion does not make you good, does it? It makes you redeemed. Goodness is an entirely different phenomenon, and it takes time. Culturally, it takes centuries. Rarely will you see the emergence of things that are dependent upon Christianity in less than two centuries. When England was re-evangelized properly under Gregory the Great, uh, the evangelization happened very quickly, and the tribes said they were Christian. But it was 400 years before they had a king who could read and write, and before you saw any beginnings of the emergence of Judeo-Christian moral culture. It's not quick. So I could tell them that story. And I said, the next thing you, you need, you have a diminished idea of salvation. Do you think of salvation in three tenses? You were saved. You are being saved, hopefully. And if you can't see that happening in your life, you need to repent and ask that you will see it in your life. And one day, when we see him, we shall be like him. Present continuous salvation is what the church majors in. Paul specifically says, I have heard that you're loving one another. That's why I'm praying for you. Has he got that backwards? No. He's praying that this growth of the church, which is showing in love for one for another, will grow. Because that's the way the church grows. Present continuous salvation. Uh, there's nothing in the New Testament that I'm aware of that makes you responsible for how you feel. Because you can't do anything about your feelings except discipline them. What you are required to do is develop a Christian mind. And that's hard work. But it's the most valuable. You, statistically, have only about a 20% probability at the end of residency that you'll be going to church. That's the average for an evangelical group. I grew up where I went to church three times every Sunday until I went to university. And fortunately for me, for the first five years in university, I went to church for the sermon because I was listening to a couple. I had every Sunday to choose between Martin Lloyd-Jones and John Stott. A pretty good choice. I still remember Lloyd-Jones' sermon, and people recognize it. They'd I've had people come up in North America and say, you were in Lloyd Jones's church, weren't you? I said, yes, I was. They recognized that he got to me. He, he preached three hour-long sermons a week. One on Friday night, which is a Bible reading. He got through one chapter of Romans in five years. If you want to listen to him, you can get him on YouTube. MLJ uh, in North America, Martin Lloyd-Jones. Listen to him on Romans 8. Uh he will set you back on your heels on a proper account of feeling, which I tend, I have a tendency to get this, to overdo the lack of feeling. Of course, when Christ comes into your life, you have feeling. It couldn't possibly be otherwise, but you can't manufacture it. That's his doing. And he can make you joyful in the worst possible place. So I said I would teach them a better theology of salvation. 
And then I said, you need to learn about discipleship. And I will do that from the Sermon on the Mount. And finally, you need to learn how to be a man and to be a Christ Judeo-Christian man in the way you raise your children and treat your wife. And they said, can we arrange that? Now, I'd been in Africa many times. I should have said, how many times do you want me to do that? But I had said to the Lord, that's the beginning of that summer, my research in the area was in ruins because of the war. They'd wrecked it all. No, I couldn't do it anymore with that. And I said, Lord, I've got nothing to do this summer. If you've got anything for me, I'll do it. You make that sort of offer to God. He takes you seriously. And my, my goodness, it was unbelievable. I spent two months teaching for between three and six hours every other day in the camps. I was in tears. They were in tears. And I, were the ha I was the happiest man in the world. You've all watched Chariots of Fire, haven't you, at some point? There's that moment when uh, Eric, who's playing rugby for Scotland and running a lot, is late for Sunday school, which to his sister is unacceptable, and she thinks he's losing his faith. And he takes her outside and he puts his hands on her shoulders and she says, Jenny, I haven't forgotten about going to China with you as a, mis uh, as a mis missionary, but God made me fast, and when I run, I feel his pleasure. God made me articulate. And that summer was the first time I gave the gift back to the Maker. And I felt his pleasure. There's nothing like it in the world. There's nothing that comes close. It is the most extraordinary phenomenon you can ever meet. And the thing that get the only thing I can go into a tragedy and do triage. I won't shed a tear. I, I do what needs to be done. But grace, well. That stops me in my tracks every time. It is the most amazing phenomenon in the world. When God, suddenly, it happens. We ask people to become Christian. Don't do that. That's God's province. You are to bear witness to what he's done to you. You can ask them what we've been talking about. Do you need to make any response? Don't say anything more than that. You'll ruin it. And if you need biblical basis for that, think of the story of Nicodemus. Nicodemus was a professor in our terms. And there's nobody more, what's the word I want? Well, prissy is one way of putting it, but uh, they are very envious. And when they see somebody who does it better than they do, they are not happy campers. And if you annoy them, they will not forget it. And they will take vengeance when they get a chance. That's what they're like. Lived there for a long while. No lots of them. But Nicodemus was better than that. He saw that Jesus was better teacher than he had. He had no training. He hadn't jumped through all the right hoops. But Nicodemus wanted to know what it was about. So he didn't want to tell everybody else that he was talking to Jesus. So he came by nine. And he got the most Irish answer that the world has ever seen. Jesus says, you can't get to where you want to go from where you are now. You can't do it. That's effectively what he says. Have you noticed that? He says, you cannot understand the kingdom until the Spirit comes to you. It's the gift of God. And when it comes, you can't deny it. Uh, 
that's why you don't want to mess it up because watching it happen is the best thing in the world. My life at this stage is unbelievable in that sense. And that I, I get emails almost certainly weekly, sometimes more often than that, from people I don't know thanking me for something I said 20 years ago sometimes. Uh, and uh, uh, all I can say is, that's wonderful. Thank the Lord, not me. I mean, I was just the vehicle. Uh, but isn't that wonderful? That is, that is what our lives are about. And we push in to do what we want to do too quickly. Uh, he, he knows what he's about. I've just been reading over the last little while a book about this thick on Genesis by an unbelieving Jew, Leon Cass, from the University of Chicago. Now, when you're older and you've got a little time, you might read it. It is utterly brilliant. He's an unbelieving Jew on his way back to faith. And he says at the beginning, this book is for believers and unbelievers alike, because many, like me, Jews, wonder why their grandparents and parents walked away after the Holocaust, you see. Many Jews walked away. Because, he says, they have left us, the modern Jews from that background, post-Second World War, empty and meaningless. And that's true. Still Jewish and still having the intellectual powers that they have, uh, culturally, but in trouble. And all around you, especially in COVID, what proportion of your class would you describe as depressed and anxious? In most schools, it's almost all of them. I have never come across students who are so passive. And in, at your age, you're supposed to know that your parents screwed up and you're going to put it all right, you know? It's time for us to straighten the world out. I had none of that passion. I used to at least to be able to make them angry. I can't even do that now sometimes. And I'm pretty good at making people angry when I'm in the mood, you know, when I want to stir it off, I can do that. Uh, but not now. That's the world we're in. Uh, that's your world. And the world of my children, my grandchildren. And I, I fear for them. Uh, I'm glad they're my grandchildren, you know, that I can do the job for them. They're, they're handling it okay. They're, they're doing their stuff, I mean. Uh, they like to come and visit their grandfather for a good argument, you know. They'll be fine. And we really do argue. We find something we really disagree about and then hammer away at it till we come to some sort of conclusion. Uh, that's what the dining room table should be. That's where it's supposed to happen. The, the central idea of Judaism educationally is found in Deuteronomy 6. And it's, it's the father's job to teach the stories of the Bible to his children before the age of seven. Mom has to be supportive in that because if she isn't and she does it, he'll go and play golf. The primary function of women is to get the men to do what they ought to do. Because if you say you'll do it, they'll say, thanks, I can go and play golf or whatever stupid thing they want to do. Uh, all the major moves we made were forced on me by my wife. So I have to be careful, I will say principle we could do and lo and behold we've got the tickets and we're on our way that's why I stopped doing medicine and did a PhD to see my children because she said I need you at home more and internal medicine you go out before they're awake and come back when they're asleep 
do something else for a bit. Doesn't anything, anything interest me? I said, lots. She said, do something about it. So I did a PhD. Uh, I don't know anybody else who's done a PhD to see their children, but that's why I did it. Uh, because I, could, I had the money. Uh, my, no boss could tell me what hours I'd work. Uh, it, it was wonderful. Uh, and it even fed back into the system. The guy who was my uh, supervisor for my PhD uh, was a very good man. He, he came from, uh, his father was a vicar, but he was by no means an active Christian. But uh, when I went to his lab for the first time, the first day in the lab, he was a clinician as well, and he, w he worked incredible hours. At about 11 o'clock in the morning, he came in and said, oh, good, I'm glad you've arrived. Uh, I'll, I'll see you at 7 o'clock in the lab tonight. I said, no, uh, Dr. Jones, that's not going to happen. One of the reasons I am here is that I'm going home to see my children, bathe them, and read them a story before they go to bed every day. And this is a very good reason not to. Uh, and the train that I like to catch is the 555. Nobody had ever spoken to Norman Jones like that before. But he was stunned. And he said, you live just across... Black Heath from me, don't you? I said, yes, on the poor side of the heath. And uh, he said, well, will you come and talk to me in my study at 11 o'clock? I said, no problem. So from then on, we discussed my work in his study at 11 o'clock at night, and I drank his whiskey. Um, years later, he told me that that week when I came into his lab, his son had written and had had to write an essay on parents. And it was six pages about his mother. And then he said, my daddy is a very nice man whom I see for precisely one and one third days each fortnight. So he was feeling guilty. I prayed for him for 20 years. And then he got saved. Of all places in, I've forgotten the name of the program now, the one where you sit around, watch videos from the guy in Brompton, uh, and then you eat together. The last place I would have effect, expected Norman Jones to get saved, but he did. Because that's the way God does things. If you're proud, you have to be humble, don't you? So uh, another good friend of mine, uh, whose books you should have. Any of you read any Diane Comp yet? Get Diane Comp's Window on Heaven and keep it on your shelf. When you see a second-hand copy, buy it. You'll give it away to patients time and time again. Diane is very like me. We're very similar. We both grew up in Christian homes. Uh, we both lost our faith in practical terms uh, in uh, early universe. Well, you know, the end of university. Graduating to become a doctor is very dangerous. Nurses want you and you're not, you don't say no. Uh, it's deep. It's trouble in all directions. Uh, she would acknowledge she, she's not uh, a very beautiful woman, but she's incredibly bright. So she had two markers against her. The guys were frightened of her because she was too smart, and they didn't look twice anyway. So she knew she wasn't going to get married. But she loved children, so she did pediatrics. And then foolishly, she ended up doing oncology. But she'd become an existentialist. She believed that life had no ultimate meaning. You do what gives you pleasure. But our mother kept turning up because as soon as she knew that she couldn't save this child, she handed them over to the social workers and she just passed by, so to speak. Just said hello. But 
Basically, she didn't get involved in the dying process. But her mum kept turning up at the back of her head saying, I didn't bring you up to desert children you love when they need you. You should be there. And of course, you give in to conscience when it's in the voice of mum. First, first little girl she sat with, a little girl about eight, dying of leukemia. And she was fading away in a terminal coma with mum and dad sitting by the bed and the hospital chaplet and Diane. And children quite often have a lucid interval just before they die. It's very interesting. Other people do too, but children more so. So this little child was fading away and suddenly sat up in bed and said, Mummy, can you see the angels? Can you hear their singing? It's beautiful. And she was gone. Just like that. It turned out, of course, the parents were Christian. A huge help in their bereavement. They had seen that her, their little daughter had already seen heaven and just wanted to get there. And she did, Diane didn't give in. The hospital chaplain went away because he'd only got Psychology 101 and they hadn't covered this. But Diane was far more astute than that. It took two more children to bring her back to faith. I won't spoil the book for you, but a little guy with an IQ of 80 nailed her. And as she said, put the nail in the coffin of her existentialism. And it's so beautiful. I won't tell you now. Get the book. And then give it any parents you see who are, bere who are facing bereavement, especially Christians. It's a book they need on their shelf. Beautiful. She wrote another one called uh, uh, A Little Child Shall Lead Them. And then the people who publish it, it's published, uh, I've forgotten. But they put the two together and added one more story and sold a third one because it sold so well, I'm sure. But the first one is the best uh, but you'll collect the others and then you start collecting these stories and they're out there. That's why doctors are much more likely at the end of their lives to be Christian than lawyers. Because if you do real medicine, you see things that stop you in your tracks. And of course, that's the good thing for you and you need to be a little bit more willing to do the work and a little more aggressive. How many of you know James Tour? Any of you? He's at Rice, that's not so far away from you, in Houston, is it? And what about um, the guy from the Discovery Institute? What's his name? Uh, got name block. Can see him. Can't remember his name at the moment. But anyway, the two of them did a, a, a brilliant conference in Dallas a little while ago. So he put James to a, um, uh, conference, a Christian apologetic conference uh, in Dallas. Uh, and uh, it will be him and the guy from the Discovery Institute. It's absolutely stunningly good. You see, the world has changed. Again, I have a little story of how God just does things. I've taught in Cuba half a dozen times, uh, mainly medicine, but it was arranged because there are Christian doctors in Cuba and Canada didn't cut off relations with Cuba. And the Christian doctors there managed to get permission for us to go and teach, to bring the updating in medicine. Uh, and I went and I said, there's no Christian content to this conference. And the Cuban doctors said, could you do that? I said, sure, I can do that. So I did. And uh, it became a permanent feature. And very quickly, the local, there's quite a lot of Baptists in uh, 
Cuba, they discovered me, and so I was teaching them as well. I got to talk to the Minister of Health about my misdemeanors at one point. He said, we know what you do. Don't push the envelope too hard. Uh, I did. Well, th that year, I think I was talking to a group of your sort of age in a packed church at midnight on a Sunday. I'd been talking about four hours. I didn't know I'd been talking for four hours, but that happens. Uh, and so I didn't get a, a, a visa for a couple of years. And then I went back and they guarded me more carefully. But on one of those trips, I had one of those, these lovely God moments that you can all have. It's what Christ wants you to have. And when you really take Romans 8 under your belt, you will see how he wants you to do that. Uh, he doesn't give it to you. He says, ask, seek, knock, because the process is part of it. It's not a gift like candy floss. It's a change of life and, and a change of understanding of happiness entirely. So anyway, uh, this one that comes to mind now, I, I'd given a lecture on some aspect of electrolyte metabolism, or acid-based metabolism, something like that, that I normally talk because people find it difficult to do, and I think it's interesting. Um, and a, a gentleman came up to me, and he didn't look like a doctor, and I said, oh, who are you? And he said, I I'm the head of the Department of Marxism and Leninism in the local university. I said, what are you doing here? He said, I've come to see you. Why? Well, the students tell me that you say Russia collapsed because it rotted from the inside. American economic power did not bring it down. And he said, I agree with you. And I realized that Russia was going to collapse and that Cuba would suffer because they bought all the sugar. Uh, I didn't want Cuba to fall back into the hands of the mafia, which used to be the case. And so I started trying to teach multicultural ethics. But the students go to sleep. But they tell me they don't go to sleep when you teach ethics. So I want you to debate me tomorrow morning, because I know you're only in town for another day, uh, in front of the faculty uh, on the nature of human ethics. I know that you believe there are no ethics without transcendence. I don't mind losing, but I want the argument. I mean, who would turn that down? I, I had one night to think about how I would do it. And I said my prayers. I had multiple starts that I knew would work. But I also knew there was a better way to do it. I had no idea what it was. The good Lord does this to me every now and again, just to remind me who's in charge. You know, it, it's really rather nice. But I got up from my chair to walk to the lectern. And he changed the first 10 minutes. He wiped the slate clean and inserted an entirely different start that I had never thought of in my life before. That's amazing. And I said to my Canadian Colombian translator, what I told you is not what's going to happen. So you better be alert. He said, this should be fun. I said, I hope so, but it may not be. We'll see. And so uh, I said, right on the blackboard behind me, in Spanish, of course, this message assembled itself. And then I asked the profs and graduate students, if you'd come into the lecture room and found that on the board, what would you make of it? And of course, that's well, they said, well, it's a sentence, it's got a main verb, and it's grammatical, but it's nonsense. Because the whole point about messages is somebody's trying to communicate to someone else, or something to something else. So it's nonsense. I said, quite right. Now I turned around, crossed out message, and put DNA in its place. 
I said, but you do believe this sentence, because Darwin told you so indirectly. The DNA assembled itself. But DNA is not you and me. It's not even a protein. It's a coded message. It's the same sentence, for goodness sake. And a whole audience burst into applause. I'd won. They'd lived with scientific materialism for long enough, and they knew I was going to take it to pieces. And I did. And it's only got better since then from our point of view. You now take it for granted, don't you, that DNA is overwritten? Or do you not? I don't know. Perhaps they've given up trying to teach you this stuff because you won't remember it anyway, do you? But God is the most amazing message writer. I mean, you each have a, what, 3.5 billion ID number, which we copied with minimal errors, and they're probably not errors. Um, but that's another story. But some years ago, uh, well, over 20 years ago, first of all, first of all, in mitochondrial DNA, uh, people started, we'd got stop codons and stop codons, and so in between was the code for a protein. Roughly 300 amino acids, so that's uh, 900 bases. Uh, so you could slip it out, so to speak, with biochemical uh, scissors and pop it in an E. coli and get the protein. But every now and again, you got two proteins, and they both worked. Nobody knew how. The guy who solved the problem, like uh, many years before, Kepler the same, insists that he didn't solve the problem. God showed him the answer. He was a Christian in Seattle, and he was sitting in his lab after midnight, looking at the sequence of bases and looking at the amino acids he'd got, the two proteins, and suddenly he saw the answer. It's easier to do it with numbers rather than letters, so just call them one, two, three, four, rather than the letters, because it just makes it easier. So you have a start it and code on at three, and then you say start here and go three, an amino acid, three, on for a thousand, you've got a protein. But he realized there was another code on saying, as well as starting here, you can start one further over. So you could go one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, and so on for about a thousand. But you could go two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten, in the same sequence. It's like taking a Shakespeare sonnet and imagine it all compressed together, and you can start at the first letter and the second one and get two entirely different poems from the same sequence of symbols. God can do that. He's done it in DNA. Now, the probability of that happening by chance is roughly one for all the molecules in the cosmos. That's zero. It is absolutely numerically impossible. The same thing is happening in physics. So the best departments in the university to be to maintain your Christian faith are quantum physics, cosmology, and molecular biology. Because it is just so overwhelming. Now what James Tour has done is the next step. Uh, that's what the Discovery Institute is involved in, what I've just told you as well. But James Tour is a chemist of the very, very high order. He's got about 800 patents. Uh, I met him a little while ago. And uh, he does a lecture, uh, an apologetics lecture. He said, this is a Christian apologetics lecture. I'm not going to mention God in the whole lecture. I'm just going to show you what it takes to get from an inorganic world to an organic one for one molecule. Not all the ones we need for life. And the chemistry is exquisitely difficult. 
and he's very good at community. You don't understand all the chemistry, but he can make you understand how much sweat and tears goes into doing this. So the barrier that DNA represents is only one. The barrier from the inorganic to the organic world is another one, which is absolutely impossible to cross by chance. We've won this battle. It's over. But more importantly still, the one thing that Darwin cannot do is what? This one glaring problem. Unfortunately, the best writer on it is an atheist who's just an honest philosopher. You cannot get from a statement in the indicative tense to a command. You cannot get from a fact uh, to a, a value. I hate the term value, I try not to, but to a moral injunction. And the guy who's written about it most well, most clearly, is a man called David Stove, now dead because he committed suicide when he got cancer, which is a perfectly rational thing for an atheist to do, but not before he had written Darwinian fairy tales. He says, I, I couldn't care whether Darwin's right or not. He's right about microevolution, that happens. Anybody who denies it is simply ignorant. Uh, but bigger than that, no, we don't have any evidence, so we're still waiting. But what we can never do is get a moral life. It's not possible. And David Stowe does it brilliantly. Uh, you cannot get an ought from an is. Just imagine this gentleman here. Can't see your name even. What, Luke? What? Imagine he has cancer. And imagine last week in my laboratory, I invented a cure for that cancer, but nobody knows about that yet. Should I give it to him? Well, he's going to say yes. Uh, do you have any friends? Doesn't look like it. Should I give it to him? Yes, right. But what if I'm a Darwinian, a real Darwinian, and he's wealthy, and when he dies, I inherit his estate? What would a real Darwinian do? Nobody knows. Let him die. I get his estate, and then I market my cure, which will take 10 years to get the real living. There's no, if it is all a battle of the genes, that's what you do. But nobody does. So it's wrong. You cannot get from physical fact to value. Now, they'll tell you they can, uh, and they have clever games, but they're not doing it. You can get prudential orts. You can't get moral orts. So if you wish to catch such train, you ought to leave now. That's not a moral statement. That's a prudential statement. Uh, and that's their escape clause, and most students don't realize what the prophet's done. But you can't actually do that. You can't get the morality out of the physical fact. But we can't live without morality. And we, we're almost inarticulate when we come to talk about these things in the church. When have you heard a really serious discussion about sexuality in church? Or about sexually transmitted disease in the youth group? Or, or about abortion? Uh, yes, you get cross about it, but can you argue the case? I give a regular lecture on abortion. You want to have fun? That's the way to do it. Uh, the best one was in Harvard, of all places. That's a lovely place to, you know, pull the short and hairies. Uh, and I was giving the lecture I give on, on abortion. Uh, they simply haven't thought about it properly. Uh, I call it the domino effect of Roe v. Wade. Things come with consequences and you can't avoid them. So if it was your class, for instance, I would start like this. I would say, 
how many of you uh, in this class do you trust? What proportion? It's a very low proportion, and it's getting less all the while. I guess I say those are not here, but the rest of you that you do trust, is there any possibility of agreement on abortion? No. Isn't that strange? Is this area that you can't agree on, but you trust one another otherwise? So the real question isn't abortion at all, is it? The real question must be, what do you need to believe in order to reach the one conclusion or the other? Now, I think that's not a difficult question to answer. If you're going to be pro-choice, you must believe that you're not killing a human person. Otherwise, it's murder, in some sense, at least. And you can't stop it once you've started that ball rolling. I was there when it was first legalized, 12 weeks, 14 weeks, 22 weeks, birth, birth canal, infanticide, geriatric, they've all happened. Nobody could say there's no slippery slope anymore. But what they haven't done is look what that slippery slope contains, and it's much more than that. Whereas our position is straightforward, and it worked for centuries, and it led to stable marriages and all sorts of other things. Uh, it's not been, the, the outcomes have not been good. But I was giving this lecture and going down the list of things that happened, there are about 10 of them, so I'm not going to do those tonight. Uh, if, you, if you want to hear them, you can find, find them on my website. But um, in Harvard, I was going to the lecture and having a discussion with myself at the same time because one of the things that is entailed in the abortion story is, in fact, animal rights. And uh, I knew how to make that case. And I was saying, hey, you're in enough trouble already. You don't need to... Ah, I couldn't resist because suddenly God slipped into my mind a poem that I hadn't used for, I don't know, a dozen years, hadn't read it, hadn't recited it. It's called The White-Tailed Hornet. I mean, the first bit is about Robert, and it's Robert Frost, you see, Harvard's favorite son and an arch-liberal, but an honest poet. And he lived, like me, he lived on a farm, and uh, hornets are fascinating creatures. They build these globular nests that my grandchildren throw stones at and get what they deserve, a sting, because uh, they're territorial, you know. Um, and that particular year, Robert Frost had gone a bit too close, and he, he got stung. And he, he went back. He knew that how far he could come and watch. And he was watching a hornet, and it attacked a nail in the wall, thinking it was edible in some way. Uh, and he realized he'd been guilty of anthropomorphizing an insect. He was just responding to instincts. It wasn't a choice. And then he wrote the poem. And uh, the bit that matters goes like this. Well, this instinct matter bear revision. That's the insect is a bundle of instincts. We're not. We have instincts, but we're not just a bundle of instincts. He said, well, this instinct matter bear revision. Won't almost any theory bear revision. To err is human, not to animal. A compliment that really takes away instead of gives. Our humor, conscientiousness, and worship went long since to the dogs under the table and served us right for that having instituted downward comparisons. As long on earth as our comparisons were stoutly upwards, with gods and angels we were men at least. But once our comparisons were yielded downwards into the, mustard, even, into the mud and even dust was disillusion upon disillusion, we were lost piecemeal to the animals, like people thrown out to delay the walls. Only our fallibility was left us, and this day's work makes even that seem doubtful. The impact they had on it. 
Harvard audience was just wonderful to watch. They, they didn't know what to say. They didn't expect that in the middle of an, a discussion on abortion. But that's what he was saying. We go down this road of reductive science and that's where we're going to end up. And he's dead right. Poets see what's coming first. They always do. And everybody else catches up later. Uh, we don't have enough good poets now. But how many of you have never come across George Herbert? One. The rest of you know who George Herbert is? I'll ask you to recite a poem. Let me try again. Anybody not able to uh, quote a George Herbert poem? No, now all the hands go off, of course, yes. Look, when somebody asks a question you don't know the answer, that's a 100% learning experience. Getting it wrong in public, you never, everybody else has forgotten in 10 microseconds, but you'll remember it for the rest of your life. I would say to students, if there's something you can't remember that you really need to, get me to ask you in the middle of before 500 students, you'll never forget it again. Uh, that's the way you learn. Uh, public errors, you never forget. Everybody else does. So here's Herbert. Nobody knew he wrote poetry until after his death. And they were discovered. Love bade me welcome, but my soul drew back, guilty of dust and sin. But sweet-eyed love, observing me grow slack from my first entrance in, drew near, sweetly asking, if I lacked anything. A guest, said I, worthy to be here. You shall be he, said love. I, the unkind, the unclean, I cannot look on thee. And who made the eyes, said God, but I? You shall sit down and eat my meat. So I did sit and eat. Isn't that a beautiful description of what it means to become a real Christian? We don't do anything except enter into a relationship that will be constantly growing and interesting for the whole of your life. Now, that wasn't the talk I intended to give, and I'm sure I've already gone a lot further in time than I should. But I do want to end with one thing, because there's some things I want you to go away intent on doing, and I'll do two this time. Others will can wait for the next lectures. And they're about how you you change your mind in the direction that Christ would want to change it. And there are two things you can do, uh, and if you do them, you will bless me forever, and that's rather nice. How many of you read the Psalms regularly? None. That's typical. As your Christianity is challenged in the next few years, you will read the Psalms a bit more because that's the last bit of Scripture. When, you, when the, the Bible dies for you, which you can do, the last bit to go will be the Psalms. Uh, because the, the rubber hits the road in the Psalms, but you have to know them before you can do that. There is, in fact, a Psalm for residency, a verse for residency. It goes like this. I have become like a dried-up old wineskin in the smoke, when will you punish those attendings who are punishing me? I've only added one word, but I haven't made any difference to the, uh, the psalm. That's in Psalm 119, somewhere around about verse 86. The, the poet, poetry, it, it would be even better in Hebrew. I don't know any Hebrew, but it is amazing. And you need to, to re read a psalm a day 
I mean, don't read 119 in one go. You know, one column of your Bible will do, um, so to speak. But read a psalm or a couple if they're very short. Before you go to school, if you do it for a month, you will never stop. Because you will go through the psalms twice a year. And that way, you will know where to go on a very bad day. And you are going to have very bad days. You're going to come home one night where someone has died because of your incompetence. And that's not easy to handle. That everybody does it. It's inevitable. It's part of the process. It's not as bad as it used to be because you have these wonderful models now that you can learn a lot on, uh, like, the pathology in a better way. Uh, some of the, the robotics are just incredible, and I think they're wonderful. But nevertheless, at the end of the day, you come along and you have to do things. Uh, I put in some of the first pacemakers in the world. We had no idea what we were doing. Uh, but when I started, they, they lasted six weeks. Uh, but a year later, they were lasting months. Now they last years. Um, wonderful to be involved, but those people that I saw when I started doing it had a worse deal than later on. You don't want to go to hospital when the residents change. That's a bad time. Mortality goes up. Uh, towards the end of their residency, that's a good time. You know, they're as good as they're going to be at that point. Uh, but that's true of us all. You've got to live with that. You need people who will help you through that. And the Psalms will help you through that. I mean, the, those are Psalms that start in gloom and end in gloom. Just to tell you, you're not alone. Those people wrote some more psalms, so they came out of it in the end. Psalm 73 would be a wonderful psalm to learn by heart for students. I call it the, uh, the student psalm. It's written in flashback. Uh, the man who wrote it, uh, not David, he says, As to me, my foot had well nigh slipped. He's looking at his life and looking back and saying, Gee, that was a mere thing. And in the psalm, he, he, he was envious of people who were not Christian. They seemed to be doing better than those who were serious believers. In that case, not Christians, Jews. And he stopped, first of all, by courtesy and by love and by good manners. He says, but if I say what I'm thinking to those at home and in my church, I will break their hearts. That's not a bad reason for not doing something. It didn't solve the problem for him at that point. There's another turning point. He says, it, it wasn't until I went into the house of the Lord that I saw that their feet, the unbelievers, were in slippery places. Oh, what a fool I was. All I need is you, O oh Lord, and I know that afterward you will take me to glory. That's just a beautiful psalm about life. Uh, you're going to have your feet in places that have well nigh slipped. Uh, my wife rescued me. Uh, the night before, uh, we'd known one another on off for seven years, but we were both always right. We still are. She still hasn't learned the lesson. Uh, and so, and she was a redhead. She's gray now, but the redheaded streak is still in her brain. Uh, and it makes life exciting. So, but we'd, we'd last about six weeks and then we'd go uh, different directions. We'd come back every now and again, you know. Uh, 
because everybody else was a pushover and that wasn't appropriate for us. Uh, and anyway, we hadn't seen one another for about over a year or so. And she turned up in Oxford and found me. Uh, she said she'd just got a posting there. Uh, I'll leave it at that. But the night before she came, I had gone back to my room. We we lived in the hospital in those days. You worked for five months and two weeks without any official time off, and you lived in the hospital. Uh, you got some service out of that, and you food and no rent, so, but pay was minimal. But I got back to my room, and there was a nurse in bed waiting for me that I hadn't even invited. And I heard the voice behind me saying, this is not the way. I felt overwhelmed and guilty, and then Sally returned. Uh, we were married a year later. Uh, the guy who married us, he understood me. I didn't even know there was going to be a sermon at our marriage. And I don't know anyone else who's had as a marriage takes. No man setting out to build a tower doesn't first find out whether he's got enough bricks. He was looking at me. The sermon was directed entirely at me, saying, I don't think you've got enough bricks for this project called marriage. And he was right. And that took us, took us back to church. Ah, took me back to church. Sally was back. She'd been wandering too, so we were both in the same state. And we're both envious of our children because uh, three of our four children married us virgins and married virgins. That's the best you can ever do. The sexologists don't tell you that. They, don't, they try to pretend this group doesn't exist because their marriages are so good. There's no divorce in our family. We have 30 to lunch on Christmas Day. Uh, there's no, no divorce there at all. Isn't that amazing in this day and age? That you can get 30 people together and they have no contact with divorce. You all want that. And remind me to teach you the four levels of happiness when you're in the mood. Uh, what time is it? What? 10.40. Oh, you, you've got off light. The first time I was aware of this was in Chicago. Uh, Wayne Detmer, who runs the Laundow Clinic, the clinic, the oldest clinic for the Indian and poor in North America, asked me to speak at his uh, annual meeting and all the local black pastors are there. And they started working on me, you know, they're so good. I got going and they started saying, preach it, doc, preach it. <laughs> they worked me up. And when it was all over, and I, I was going back in the car with Wayne. I said, I'm tired. He said, do you know how long you preach for? Half an hour, 40 minutes. He said, two and a half hours. <laughs> I had no idea. So you, you have to stop me if I go on too long. That's the way it works. And you might get the talk you think you get, and you might not. But if it's different, it's for someone. I know that. Uh, now, the other thing, the Psalms, and the second one, take Bonhoeffer's advice. You're entering a period of your life which is very dangerous to your soul. When you enter these dangerous periods, you need to have a passage of Scripture from God to you personally. Ask him to put a passage of scripture into your mind in a way that you can't deny and then you learn it by heart first. Not just plain memory, that's just step one. What happens with scripture, like no other book, is that it can come to life. 
Now, for me, it was the Sermon on the Mount, which if I started on that would be another three hours before I finished it. Um, but I was praying that prayer because I knew that in some ways I was in the doldrums. I'd returned to the faith, but I knew some things had to change. And this was the process of what I now do. This is how it started with, that, with the Sermon on the Mount. And it was unbelieving students because um, I came back from Africa for the first time and I'd read Alan Bloom's Closing of the American Mind on the way and his thesis, as far as I'm concerned, is that most of you, even as Christians, are effectively biblically illiterate. You don't know the scriptures well in most cases. And you're not taught it in school uh, where you should have been taught. Whereas when I went to school, in elementary school, every class in my elementary school, every year had to recite a psalm in front of the rest of the school as a group. And so the teacher had to get you. I can still remember Mr. Crockett getting us worked up about who shall ascend into the hill of the Lord, you know. Uh, uh, you don't forget those things. That's why it should be done then. But it's not happening now. We're not getting educated anymore. So uh, I had been praying that prayer. And... I said to the students, the medical class, teaching biochemistry, somehow I managed to say, if Alan Bloom is right, and I've been reading him of late, you are a bunch of ignoramuses. Now, if you said that today, there'd be a riot on the spot, wouldn't that? But in those days, this was 1987, um, 88, thereabouts, uh, they were more polite than that. But about 20 of them came up after the, uh, the lecture and said, you've no right to call us ignorance. You don't know that. I said, it's not me, it's Alan Bloom, but, uh, so I'm not going to apologize, but why don't we find out whether he's right? And they said, what do you mean? I said, well, I think Alan Bloom says that if you don't know the, the stories of the Bible, you are metaphorically deficient. And I can't teach you philosophy without the full range of Christian metaphors, and you can't read Shakespeare without understanding the full range of Christian metaphors. So let's see whether you know the scripture. You all think Gandhi's a great guy. And he said the Sermon on the Mount is the greatest piece of writing that's ever happened. Tell me how it starts and what it says. Now, you're Christian, but I bet you can't. How many of you could tell me the first verse of the Sermon on the Mount? If you don't raise your hand, I'm going to point at you as they recite it. How many of you could do it? No one. And they couldn't either. Uh, there you are. Alan Bloom's right. You're ignorant. And then, bless them, they said, what are you going to do about it? And I said, that's your problem, not mine. I don't intend to do anything. I'm very compassionate in that way. And uh, they said, but you claim to know important things that we should know. I, without thinking, I said, what you need is an Agnostics Anonymous group because you don't even know the questions, let alone the answers. And they said, that's right. So AA was born on the spot as an extracurricular course. And the only prerequisite to taking that course, you couldn't claim to be a Christian. And I got a quarter of the class every year. And I said, I will set out to change that situation and prove to you that objective moral truth must exist. They thought, that I didn't have a hope in hell of, of winning that one, of course, every year I won. But as I walked away, I realized that although I could dredge up bits of the Sermon on the Mount, I couldn't do what professors, if you're meant to be a professor, you don't apply for jobs, people ask you to do it because you can do the job. It's, it's a job that only certain people can do, and if the job didn't exist, I'd be unemployable. 
I would go to medical student lectures on biochemistry with the wrong notes to keep myself awake. They never knew. It didn't matter. Uh, we give lectures and you have to stop us. We, notes are just a sort of security blanket. But I couldn't do that with our Lord's Longest Sermon. So I had to learn it by heart. As I said, it now takes me three hours to do that sermon. It's been growing for, what is it, 40 years? And it's still growing. The only analogy I can come up with that having the scriptures brought to life for you like that is like watching water fall in a desert and the flowers come up. It is so rich. It is beyond belief. And once you really take it on board, you see it all over the New Testament. They all knew it. The book of James is a commentary on the Sermon on the Mount. Uh, and so he goes on. But it's the way to become a disciple. And the first step in becoming a disciple is blessed are the poor in spirit. Now that's an aphorism. You have to ask the Christian, what did he say next? Aphorisms have to be expanded, have to be understood. Jesus obviously did that. Matthew didn't write it down. Matthew had a good mind, and Jesus obviously preached the sermon in various forms in various villages. And what we got from Matthew is pretty good. Uh, it's going to be lovely to find out the details later on, but he had to say something. And you can find the, the phrase poor in spirit in other places. And of course, what makes you poor in spirit? Well, of course, it's facing the truth about who you are. If I could now go zap and for the rest of this weekend you're having a, a bubble over your head like a cartoon character and every thought that you have is there for everybody else to read, what are you going to do? How many friends are you going to have in two days' time? A city. You know, it, it, a moment when you all, we all think things that we're very glad nobody knows we thought. That's who we really are. And Jesus says, that's the first step. You are blessed when you face that reality. In fact, you have the kingdom. That's what he says. And of course you do, because he knows that when you become that addicted to truth-telling, that you can face the nasty truth that we all have within us, you get to him. Why? Because he's the source of all truth. It takes The, the more proud you are, the longer it takes. I mean, it, it took John Wesley 10 years, and he was a missionary in those 10 years. And he was, as he wrote in his journal, I can save others, but who will save me? And then he got saved by a man reading Luther's commentary on Romans in broken English, just so that he got over his Oxford snobbery. That's the way God works. Poverty of spirit is the first step in being a disciple. Uh, and I still struggle with that, of course. I have a, a mind that can be salacious and a tongue that can be dangerous. I have plenty of things to be, for goodness sake, give me a break, Lord. You know, uh, and I, I go ahead. I can't not only resist putting the knife in, but giving it a twist, you know. You all have, you know what your problems are. Women's are different from men's, aren't they? Uh, I didn't realize for a long while, and then a feminist at, in uh, the University of Ottawa said, oh, you don't understand. She said, there are reasons feminists should hate men, but not the ones that most feminists say. She said, the reason is, you guys, when you have 
a confrontation with your male friends, you'll hit one another, push you one another around, then you go to the pub for a drink. You get over it, just like that. We women can't do that. We hold on to these things. We do not have that capacity to just have a little outburst and forget it. You don't do that. And I couldn't believe it. And then I asked a few women's groups, Christian women, is that true? And what did I get as an answer? Yeah, I can see it on your faces. That little, yes, is the answer. We're different. So men need to know that, and women need to be open about it. And it's the reason why we're suitable to do some things and not others. Women are so protective of children for good reason, and that's part of the deal. Um, it's all there in Scripture, you find it. We all have a role, and we all have a purpose. Uh, and the Beatitudes are sequential. They are character formation, Jesus style. And I go through, the, the Sermon on the Mount will appear in my mind at some time every day. And it's done that for 20 years. In fact, if I wake up in the middle of the night, which I do frequently, the first thing I do is recite the Sermon on the Mount to me. And it teaches me, you don't wake up for long, usually 12 verses. So I have to start at different places in the, the, the sermon to get, get it right. Thank you guys all for listening today. I hope you really enjoyed it. If you have enjoyed it, feel free to leave a comment, leave a review, or share it with a friend. And if you have a question for Dr. John, you can ask that at www.johnpatrick.ca forward slash ask, or you can check the links in the description below. Thank you guys all so much, and we will see you all next week. Mm -hmm.